Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin, or it can be found on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things were, uh, happened to them as an example, for they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word of the Lord. What is the biggest test you have ever taken? For some of us, it might be the SAT can remember going back, you wanted to go to college and you sat and had to take this test that was a, supposed to be a summary of all that you knew. Or maybe if you're involved in the medical profession, your nursing boards or dental or medical. Or maybe in the military. Some of us are familiar with the infamous BUDS school uh, for the SEALs that you have to take. A brutal test that proves what you know that proves what you can do. Testing is a part of life. But you could also say that life itself is a test, is it not? It's a test for us as Christians, which many of us are. We've given our hearts to Jesus Christ. We've proclaimed him as our Savior and Lord. And that claim is going to be tested in life. See, that's what's happening to the church at Corinth, these Corinthian believers. They are being tested by the world, and they're feeling the pull, the temptation to turn back, to renounce their trust in Jesus Christ, to trust in the world instead, to worship the idols of the world. And the question for them and for us is this, will we continue to set apart Jesus as Lord, to trust in him alone? Or will we fail the test? How can we be sure that we will be able to stand and at the end of our lives be able to look back and say, I have passed the test. I have kept the faith. The answer is this, that Christ, who has come before us, God incarnate in flesh, has passed the test. And he has laid hold of us. And by trusting in him and not in ourselves, he will help us to pass this test. 
See, Jesus has baptized us into himself that we might belong to him alone. So let us give our hearts to no one but him. Here is what Paul is telling us in the Corinthians we need to do in order to pass this test. Number one, we have to embrace our baptism. Number two, we need to examine our lives daily. And then finally, number three, we need to lay hold of his power. So let's examine these points. Number one, we need to embrace our baptism. Paul, in this epistle to the Corinthians, has been speaking of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Christ has freed us from the power and dominion of sin, and we no longer have to sin. He's freed us from having to follow the false idols of the world and freed us to follow the true Lord and Savior. See, freedom is not only freedom from something, it's freedom for something. Freedom to worship the one true God. But the Corinthians are continuing to dabble with the world. They're still looking to the world for freedom. And looking to the idols of the world, of comfort and status and prestige. And they're not caring that the fact that they're doing so is harming their brother's faith. Paul has been speaking about his life and his fealty to Jesus Christ. He's been using his life as an example to remind them what God has called them to. And in Paul's life, we see that he has forsaken the world. He's given up his freedoms, for instance, the freedom of being paid in order not to put an obstacle in front of people hearing the gospel. Paul has made his life to, as much as possible, become all things to all men, that they might hear Christ. Paul has demonstrated in his life that we cannot serve two masters. And so in this passage, Paul hearkens back to the Old Testament, and he wants to use the original people of Israel as a warning. If you'll remember, God liberated the Jewish people from slavery to Egypt, and he brought them out through Moses. These people might have left Egypt, but you see, Egypt never really left them. And so Paul uses them as a warning. Notice in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is the passage that uh, we read earlier in the service. It says that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Very interesting here, this concept, the cloud and the sea. Jesus himself said in John 3, 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, this story of what happened with Israel is a picture of the true baptism. So these people passed the cloud, went behind them and before them, and they went through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses. Now notice the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses was called by God to go to rescue the Israelites, to bring them out of captivity. He was called to be the mediator of the covenant between God and the people. 
In other words, to represent God to the people and also to represent the people to God. And, and Moses went and God used him. And the people placed their faith in Moses as representing God. And they followed him as he led them out of Egypt. And we see that Moses stretches out his staff. The people see the Egyptians coming and they say to Moses, have you led us out into the desert to die? But Moses stretches out his staff and the water parts and the people walk through and they come out the other side and the Egyptian army is destroyed. They emerge as a new people, as a free people. Egypt no longer has any claim on them. See, the people followed God through Moses. They were baptized into him. In the same way, we see that God continues to care for the Israelite people as they're on this pilgrimage, this journey to Canaan land. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. We see that. God provides for the people on this journey. When they have no food, God gives them manna from heaven, and he provides water to them. Several times he provides it through a rock, and this rock is symbolic of the person of Jesus Christ. See, Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, but he's revealed in the New Testament. Jesus was there providing and caring for the Israelite people. But nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. For most of them, almost all of them, except for one, for two, they never made it to the promised land. God was not pleased with them. And why did they not make it? Because they refused to trust in God and worship him alone. We see in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This harkens back to Exodus where Moses goes up on the mountain and he hasn't come down for a while. And the people get restless and they say to Aaron, we don't know where this guy Moses has gone. We want you to make us a new God that we can follow. And so Aaron fashions for them this golden calf that they are going to worship, and they carouse, and they play, and they say, this is the God who led us out. You, you sort of read that, and you scratch your head going, are you kidding me? I mean, did you not walk through the Red Sea with water to the left and the right? How can you forget and turn so easily? And yet they did. They refused to trust in God and worship him alone. Continues in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. As they continued in this journey through the desert, they began to intermarry or to, uh, to uh, uh, engage with the Moabite women, something God forbade them to do. And the Moabite women drew them to worship uh, uh, another god, and they knelt down at the other God, they were influenced because of their behavior, their decision to interact with these people. 
Multiple times, they put God to the test, grumbling against God, saying that he would not provide, he would not care for them. And they were multiple times God sent judgments against them, once by serpents, once by destroying uh, uh, in the outskirts. They rejected the mediator. There were times when they said, we want to go back to Egypt. We had food. We had a great time. How quickly they forgot that they were in slavery. And rather than trusting and worshiping God, they wanted to go back to slavery to their old masters. Paul sums it up in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, we are to learn from their example so that we would not walk and follow in the same ways. Like them, we are a people who have been chosen out of slavery to sin through a mediator that God has sent, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And he has us on pilgrimage to our final destination, and that being the coming of the kingdom of God. But we are in the midst of the journey, are we not? We have not arrived yet. We, too, have to live by faith. And like the Israelites, we are surrounded by a culture that rejects Jesus Christ. So if they couldn't do it, how are we not to fall into the same trap? And the answer is, we have been baptized into a different mediator. Not into Moses, but into Jesus Christ. Because Moses was a mediator, but he was just a man. Jesus was the son of God and a perfect man. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and was resurrected and poured out his Holy Spirit in us. See, for the Israelites, the cloud went alongside of them. But the cloud is in us. The power and the presence of God. And Jesus is in us through the Holy Spirit. The people of Israel walked through the water. They were baptized as they walked through the water. But we have been washed and cleaned by the Holy Spirit. The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was conditional. But Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the one who guarantees it for us. The Israelites came out on the other side of the sea as a new people by name. But we are a new creation in Christ. The law was powerless to change their hearts. But Christ in his Holy Spirit gives us a new power, a new way to live. For all of these reasons, we who are called to flee from idolatry will have victory if we hold on to the faith. We who are subjected to the same temptations and trials can stand firm against them if we embrace 
our baptism. The one who we are in. The one who is with us and in us. And walks alongside of us. I don't know if you followed the tragic saga of the Ocean Gate Titan submersible vehicle. That was a private endeavor that was taking several people down 13,000 feet to look at the Titanic. And they lost contact with it and have discovered that it imploded under the great pressure. And information came out about this Titan vessel, that it was constructed in a very unique way. It was 22 feet long, 23,000 pounds But unlike other vessels that were constructed of stainless steel or titanium, it was constructed of carbon fiber and titanium as well. And there are all sorts of problems with that. See, pressure holes should be constructed of a contiguous material like titanium or steel or ceramic, but carbon fiber is a composition of two different materials, and as such, it can twist it can torsion with one another and so there is a danger of delamination these materials becoming separated from one another and that apparently is what happened that as this uh, vessel took trips down to titanic it got progressively weaker and weaker spots that one couldn't even see uh, became weaker until finally it could not handle the pressure And it collapsed in upon itself. See, it was faulty construction, not a safe vessel to trust in. And it eventually cracked. So the question I have for you and for me is this. Who are we trusting in as we go through this life? Who are we trusting in to lead us to eternal life. We all are going through this Red Sea called living. And the world is hard. We experience the pressures that it puts upon us to live as it desires. To worship the things that the world worships. And the world laughs at Christians saying, will you really put your trust in a person that you've never seen? But Jesus is the only vessel that has gone into death and come out the other side. And when we are baptized into Christ, we actually on that cross die and are raised to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. When you are feeling the pressures of the world, don't look to the world. Look to Christ. He is the one strong enough to lead us to the end. We must embrace our baptism, but we must also, point number two, examine 
our allegiances. Paul, after summing up the failure of the Egyptian uh, of the Israelites, turns and says in verse 12, "Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall." I like the NIV that puts it this way. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul is saying, take stock of your life because how I live shows what I believe. We're never in the Bible called to doubt our salvation, but we are called to examine it for we can be deceived. We can think that we have been baptized in Christ, but not be. See, the Corinthians have an assurance, but a wrong assurance is what they're depending on. Notice that Paul, the assurance that Paul is attacking is not the assurance of faith that rests on the promises of God, but rather the assurance of the Corinthians who are guilty of a misplaced confidence in their own knowledge. See, this is assurance, an assurance that we can have as well in the wrong thing rather than in the promises of God. Before the Enlightenment, faith, if you had asked a person to give a synonym for the word faith, they would have used the word trust. But after the Enlightenment, if you were to ask people a synonym for the word faith, they would have used the word belief. And there's a big difference between those two, at least the way that we think about belief. For belief is something that we cognitively grasp, but trust is something that we put our weight on, right? Even the demons know that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they don't follow him as Lord. Trust is putting all of our weight and confidence in what we believe to be true. Now, the scriptures teach the perseverance of the saints, that those who are in Christ, no one will ever, ever take them away. Jesus himself said in John 10, 10 28, I give my people eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And so the evidence that you and I are saved is that we continue to persevere in putting Jesus first in our lives. 2 Corinthians 13.5 puts it this way, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And so we must take the example of the failure of the Israelites and use it as a test to examine ourselves. And I'm going to ask you four questions that will help you as you examine and test yourself. Number one, have you left Egypt? Have you left Egypt? Have you walked through that water? Have you made the decision, I'm not going back no matter what? When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him to come and die. To die to this world, to die to an autonomous life, and to live to him. 
The scriptures say, do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does belongs not to the Father, but to the world. Jesus calls us out of the world, and he calls us to himself. In Luke 14, 26, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his children, his wife, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, he's not saying to literally hate them, but compared to devotion to Christ. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is calling us to himself. He says, I'm not only the way, the truth, and the life, but in order for you to have me, I have to be your way and your truth and your life. So have you left Egypt? Number two, who has your heart? Who has your heart? It's interesting, these people, right? They're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Moses isn't coming down. And so what do they say? They, they need something to worship. But it's not the God of Israel, not the God who saved them. And so they say to Aaron, make us something. Make us a calf that we might bow down and worship. What is it that you bow down and worship? What is it that you live for? What is the reason for your existence? What do you serve? What, when it says to you, jump, you say, how high? What do you look to to bring wholeness and deliverance? Is it possessions, accomplishments, reputation, or is it the Lord? Does the Lord have my heart and my devotion? Number three. What does your life say? What does your life say? I know what I say, but what does my life say? For how I live shows what I believe. Am I living a life that strives for holiness? Am I fighting against sin and fighting for the Lord? To be sure, there is a struggle. If there is no struggle, something is wrong. Have I been, I have been set apart. Notice the Israelites, what did they do? They went and they caroused in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. That's just what you did, right? That's the way the world works. That's the way we're going to work. But do, or do I live for something bigger and better? Is the behavior of my life characterized by love for my neighbor, for my enemy, and for my God? You know, there's no one who loves God so much as he who is fearful to offend him. Do I look like the world? Do not be deceived, the scripture says, for what a man sows, he shall reap. Is my life characterized by prayer? And the word, is there a hunger in my heart to know him? Or am I satisfied with what the world 
offers. Finally, am I living a private life or am I living in community? There's something about when God calls us and baptizes us into himself. We want to congregate because God is in the business of gathering people together and not separating them. God is gathering his people, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Do I hunger for God's church to be glorified and hunger to be in fellowship with my brother and sister? I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, this phenomenon happen. It's so interesting what it does. It's the phenomenon of sinkholes, right? There was one in 2017 in Landa Lakes, Florida. It just opened up out of nowhere in this neighborhood and swallowed seven homes. Imagine you're just chilling in your home and all of a sudden you're at the bottom of this giant hole. It's a sinkhole. And no one knows where they are or when they're going to happen, but it's fascinating. There was one in Chicago a couple years ago there, there uh, and just swallowed two cars just like that. They've tried to understand the phenomenon of sinkholes because everything looks great on the surface and then all of a sudden, gone. What usually happens is it's human issues. It's running power and electrical and sanitation lines underneath. It's uh, uh, timbering, removing the tinder, uh, timber and the roots and it disturbs the soil and the cohesion of the soil and then the water and the groundwater comes up and as the groundwater recedes, it takes a little more soil every single time until the ground is so weak that it cannot sustain the weight that is above it and it falls. See, we're not called to doubt our salvation, but to examine it. So we need to run a diagnosis on our hearts every day. What needs to change in your life? Do I need to finally say, I'm not going back to Egypt anymore. I'm cutting ties with the world. Maybe there's some golden calves that need to be burned and ground to powder and thrown into the sea. The Christian life is not about taking my eggs and diversifying them in many baskets, but taking all of them and putting them in one basket and watching that basket. Christ has baptized us into himself that our hearts might not belong to anyone but him. This brings me to my final point, that we must lay hold of his power. Paul has given this example of the Israelites, and he's called us to watch our own hearts and lives. And now he helps us to understand when that temptation does come and that testing pulls against us. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. God has set our feet on solid rock, not on a sinkhole, that we might endure in faith. But we must understand that the Christian life is not the absence of temptation. There is the world, the devil, and the flesh 
of our fallen bodies that will continue to whisper us, whisper to us, go back to Egypt, worship this God or that God. Temptation, as this verse says, is common to man. Whether it is the internal temptations that arise inside of us or the external temptation to conform to our culture. But what does it say? That God is faithful. When we are tempted, there is a temptation to say, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? But the scriptures tell us clearly that God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God knows our limits. He knows what we can handle. Now that begs the question, why does God allow us to be tempted at all? God is not the author of evil, but clearly he's allowing this temptation to occur. But you see, how could we learn to be holy except when confronted with unholiness? Sanctification is a muscle that must be exercised to grow. God wants to grow us through this process of temptation. And he provides us with the faith and the strength to resist. We do not have to be overcome by temptation. Whether it be doubt, or sinning, or hating, or lying, or falling away, whatever it is. But with the temptation, he also will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, notice what it says. We think of the escape, but this escape is not to take the temptation away. Sort of like an escape hatch. Where's the escape hatch that I can go through and this temptation disappears? Rather, it says, with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. To bear up under it is the Greek. See, it is the way of escape is actually the ability and the strength to withstand, to triumph through the temptation. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't certain temptations that I should run from, right? But there are many temptations that I can't run from. It's there wherever I go. But the Lord is there as well. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Romans 8, 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we do not, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to it. God is greater than this world. And Christ who is in us gives us the ability to withstand, to endure temptation, and to come out on the other side. What does all of this mean? So what? Embrace our baptism. Look to the rock from which we were cut. Look to the vessel on which we reside and are inside. Examine our allegiances. 
and lay hold of his power. For no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When you are tempted, and you will be, God is there. And he who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Let us remember and walk in the power and baptism of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the example of how you um, rescued these people and yet they refused to trust in you. But you have given us a better baptism. Jesus, you are Lord and Savior who we are in and you are in us. And you promise to never leave us or forsake us. You promise us that you have overcome the world, and in you we shall do so as well. Let us fix our eyes on you, trusting in the baptism that you've given us. And let us walk in confidence, looking to you moment by moment for strength, aligning ourselves with no one else but you as we endure and have victory over the test. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.